you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, as we await a verdict in Harvey Weinstein's sexual assault trial in Los Angeles, some new lawsuits have been filed against Bill Cosby and filmmaker James Toback in New York. Plus, my conversation with comedian, writer, and actor Kamel Nanjiani about his new Hulu series, Welcome to Chippendales, and why he was reluctant at first to take on the role. I just was like, I don't know how to play someone like this. I don't think I know how to approach a character this dark who does the things that this guy does. But first, a horror film centered on a recent immigrant from Senegal working as a nanny for a family in New York. Nanny won the grand jury prize at this year's Sundance Film Festival. It was written and directed by Nikiatu Jusu and stars Anna Jope as the titular character. In this scene, Jope's character has a disagreement with the mother of the family she works for, played by Michelle Monaghan. I find you feeding my daughter food that is way too spicy for her tummy. What is even in this? What if she's allergic? Did I feed her this? Hmm? How's this? How's this? Since I've started, I have been buying her food or making some of my own. Did you ever wonder how your child was eating? Are you too busy to care? Anna Job came to the U.S. from Senegal when she was a child. Her first television role was on the sitcom Everybody Hates Chris. She was also a series regular on the Fox series 24 Legacy and on the DC comic series Titans. Here's our conversation about Nanny. I want to ask you a little bit about the first conversations you had with your director about this character and about the important aspects of the story that you both felt were essential to making this film work? The first conversations I had with Nikki Atu were me trying to get clarity about Aisha's mental state and how Nikki Atu viewed Aisha's mental state. Is this a woman that's experiencing some form of schizophrenia? Is that a part of her past? Does she have mental illness, Um, a history of mental illness? Or is this really and truly a, a woman that is completely of sound mind that's experiencing these spiritual entities that are now imbuing her reality and in, in her dreams? And so Nikki Atu is such a generous director in that she didn't want to give me a straightforward answer because she wanted me to come to that decision myself. But I could tell from her response to my question um, that she was definitely leaning towards the latter. And, and as an actor, your job is to just make choices. And for me, I try to make the most interesting, complex, dynamic choices for my characters. And for Aisha, that was that she is completely of sound mind, incredibly intelligent, very grounded. And instead, um, she, she's now contending with these things that are very real, despite her not being able to, for the most part, have a tangible uh, proof of them. 
So that it is the world that is out of balance, not her. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I think that that's so powerful, especially when you're telling a story of, of, a, of a protagonist, of a person that we don't often get to see and that we barely know, really. There are ways in which this story can be told, and many of those ways would spend too much, or let's just say a lot of time, on the family for whom Aisha works. And I suspect that was you know, perhaps a conversation that the people who are making this film or financing it had, but it feels very deliberate and intentional. And I, and I, I think you, you and your director might have resisted this, that their story is not important. Yes, this is a family that has troubles and yes, their marriage is falling apart, but that's not the story, right? Yes, your thought is exactly correct. It was something that we... Um, fought for, especially in Nikiatu, she was adamant on keeping the gaze on Aisha. She was adamant about um, not further exploring this white family because she was constantly getting that note and constantly getting that request. Well, what about Amy's this and that? And what about the relationship? And maybe we should throw in one or two more scenes about this. And why don't we just add a piece, a dialogue for so-and-so? You know, she was constantly, constantly veering people away from that. And these are, you know, these are where our, uh, our partners in this film and they're incredible people. They're the ones that gave us the money to make it. But, you know, we all kind of fall victim to this um, experience of centering whiteness. We're just so used to it that it takes an active effort <laughs> really to kind of veer away from that. And I'm so glad that she's so strong in who she is and her vision for this, that she stuck with that. I'm going to ask you about a very important contributor, colleague, partner in the making of this film, and that is your cinematographer, Rena Yang. We have talked about the photography in this film, but I'm going to ask you a little bit more. Rena, and certainly Nikiatu, is very focused on your face and what your face and what your body looks like. So let's talk first, before we talk about what hasn't happened in the past, about how that's important, not just for this character, but for film in general, that your face, the face of a Black woman, is just as important as the face of a white man. Hmm. I worked on a series. We'll call it Titans, for just sake of argument. <laughs> okay. I worked on a series that we'll call Titans for the sake of argument. And after the first season aired and I watched it and I was really kind of disappointed in, in the ways in which I was lit, the ways in which you often couldn't see me, the ways in which I was lit poorly or in a way that was very unflattering. I came to the team during pre-production of second season. And I said, look, these were my feelings about the lighting in season one. How do we remedy this? And the response I got was from our DP who said, well, when you are in a scene with your co-stars who are all white, save for Ryan, who is half white and half Japanese, I have to prioritize or rather I have to choose that I will like them properly. 
over you. And, you know, how does one respond to, to something like that? Um, and so me being lit improperly or unflatteringly, that continued to happen. And it's a bummer, it's a bummer because as a Black woman, I move through life most oftentimes invisible as Aisha does. And to finally get to a place where you're literally in front of a camera and literally in the homes of millions of people and still invisible is quite uh, disheartening and upsetting and frustrating. And so it was in Nanny a transformative experience to know that I could trust these women <laughs> that were creating the images that, that I deserve to have and that we as people deserve to to have as Black people, so. That story, it is such a metaphor. And let's just talk about Hollywood. We could talk about the world, but let's just talk about Hollywood. The fact that you couldn't be lit the same way that white characters could be lit says everything you need to know about Hollywood and representation in a nutshell. In that moment, who is visible, who isn't, who gets the priority, who doesn't, um, and it's, to me, it's really heart, it's heartbreaking, but it's true. Yeah, it is. Like you said, it's a microcosm, right? Of, of the greater truth and reality of the world that we're navigating. Um, but look, we all are, are just, again, victims of what it is to live in a world that centers whiteness. And that is simply the world that we live in. And we're all, again, having to actively, actively and intentionally work against that. And so that's couldn't, the journey. Couldn't agree more. I want to ask you one last thing about stories involving trauma and pain. Uh, the new movie, She Said, is about Harvey Weinstein and the reporters who took him down from the New York Times. And the filmmaker very intentionally said, we're not going to see any of the assaults. The new movie about Emmett Till, very specifically, does not show anything happening to Emmett Till. You certainly see, you know, the aftermath of it. And then there's other people who make different choices. And it's tricky because if we don't understand and confront the violence and damage that has been caused, it's hard to move forward. But at the same time, it's very easy to indulge in that and almost use it as a tool that is um, gratuitous. I'm curious, it's hard to navigate it, but what are your feelings about because Nanny certainly suffers, but we don't like where's that line for you and how do you how do you weigh that decision? Gosh, that's such a great question. Um I will say Nikki Yatu was very adamant and very intentional about, and I don't want to spoil the film, but leaving it in a place of hope. Um, because in her words, she is exhausted from taking in media, taking in stories that are only um, positioning Black women or Black people in places of despair and trauma. Um, there's so much more to us than that. And I think when we talk about, she said, when we talk about filmmakers and projects like this that are um, turning the camera, turning the gaze towards something um, outside of just trauma, they're, they're doing it because there is more to us than that. And there's more to explore than that. And 
I'm all with that. I'm so, I, I so agree with that. I so support that. But again, it is tricky because on the other hand, there's power in showing that image too, hopefully, and that it's hopefully blowing up empathy in people um, and, and hopefully moving toward people towards action because um, we've seen that happen as well in the past. And so it's really like everything else in life, a balancing act. And we are all as artists just trying to find and strike the right balance. That was Anna Jope, star of the new film Nanny. It's in theaters now and available on Amazon Prime on December 16th. Coming up, my conversation with Kamel Nanjiani about the new Hulu series Welcome to Chippendales he stars in and what the dismal box office numbers mean for the work he does as a screenwriter. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. As far as careers go in the entertainment industry, Kamel Nanjiani's has been pretty wide-ranging. He's done stand-up, screenwriting, acting. But as an actor and as a Pakistani-American, he was initially typecast as a nerd or a villain. His autobiographical 2017 film, The Big Sick, which he co-wrote with his wife, Emily V. Gordon, and also starred in, changed things for him in a big way, as did his 2021 role in the Marvel movie, Eternals. When we spoke recently about Welcome to Chippendales, his new Hulu series about the origins of the L.A. strip club, we started off talking about why he first turned down the opportunity to work on the project. At the time, the Big Sick had just come out and my head was spinning a little bit suddenly. You know, after years of really like sort of struggling for acting opportunities, suddenly I had sort of things coming my way. And I was like, I want to do comedies. You know, I want to be in comedies. I don't want to like leave my comfort zone quite yet. I just got here. But honestly, really more than that, I think I was just intimidated by the material I probably... I'd not probably, I just was like, I don't know how to play someone like this. I don't think I know how to approach a character this dark who does the things that this guy does. So honestly, I was just, I was just scared to do it. The Big Sick was the first time I'd done any kind of dramatic acting. That movie's still a comedy, but it has some dramatic stuff in it. I just didn't feel equipped to, to tackle something like Chippendales. Was part of the thinking also that Steve Banerjee to some people, would reinforce stereotypes of what somebody like him sounds like and acts like, you know, that this is a brown person who is a ultimately not a good person. But there's an opposite side of that coin, which is that if we don't show people, regardless of how they look or how they identify, being both good and bad, then we're creating an equally false world. That's exactly right. I mean, I told myself I was intimidated by the material and I said, I don't know if I want to do a thing with a brown guy who's sort of a murderer. I don't know if that's going to be very valuable in this moment. And, you know, you got to understand this was right. Trump had just become president. 
So the way I had seen America was really sort of shook. Um, things really had changed. And, you know, I was having, I was talking to my mom about it a lot and, and just sort of felt like a little bit even more margin, marginalized than I had felt before. I want to be clear, since then, things have been great. We've solved everything. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah, we fixed it. There's no racism anymore. Everyone sees me as American. Um, and so I was like, I don't know if it's going to be valuable in this moment for me to portray a brown guy who's a bad guy. But then later I thought, I think, you know, um, only playing noble good guys is just as reductive as only playing stereotypically bad guys. That I want to play complex, layered characters. I want to try and play real people. I don't mean people based on real people. I just mean like people who act like real people on screen. I think that that's more valuable. Um, and, and I can't try and uphold some weird, inaccurate version of, uh, you know, brown people. Uh, I can't present something that's not real. Like, you know, I think no, noble characters are a little bit boring. So what happened in terms of your mindset as an actor where this material became more attractive to you than it was back in 2017? I think I got a little more confident. I think I started trusting myself a little bit more. And I honestly think I made this decision about um, maybe two or three years ago that I wanted to have fun in every job I did. The experience, I had never prioritized the experience of actually acting on set. To me, it was just about the work. So I would kind of like live, eat and breathe the job. Um, if I was shooting somewhere, all I thought about was what I was shooting the next day. And, you know, I wouldn't like go out to eat or look around the town or or have or, or go see movies and that kind of stuff. And then I decided I wanted to like have more fun doing this. And as I started to have more fun, I think my acting became better. I was just more relaxed. I felt I felt freer. I felt I could trust myself in scenes more. I felt like I wasn't holding on to the preparation as much. Like I found myself sometimes, you know, I always prepare a lot, but sometimes during scenes I'd find myself choking the life out of the moment by trying to recreate some version of the scene I had prepared in my head a week ago. And so doing all that, I realized at least acting was a little different than I thought it was. Um, and then when this thing came back to me, I said, okay, now that I know how to be more loose on camera, doing something like this, I, I at least know where to start now. I don't need to like, you know, I was afraid that if I played a character like this, I would just be dark all the time and get messed up and all this, you know, sometimes those stories. Um, you, you know, go, you go all Daniel Day-Lewis on us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I spent a year making shoes. Um, I don't know why that would be applicable in this case. I'm running a male strip club. Um, yeah, so so I just sort of realized that I wanted my and I wanted my acting to be bigger. I wanted to do more different kinds of things. I, you know, it sounds so cliche to say I wanted a challenge. It wasn't that I wanted a challenge necessarily. I wasn't looking for something difficult. I just wanted to be able to do more things than I'd been able to do on camera. I'm going to play another clip from the third episode of Welcome to Chippendales. This is when your character, Steve Banerjee, uh, encounters a dance routine, kind of a Frankenstein dance routine that Chippendales made famous, but he's not exactly excited about it when he first sees it. 
I am the boss. This is my club. And you are my employee. You are all my employees. Is that clear? Is that clear? I think that's a, a good part of who Steve was. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that scene and about what it says about who Steve was? Yeah, so I think I sort of finally made sense of Steve as a human being by approaching him at, at the character. You know, I don't know what the real guy was like. Approaching him as someone who has grief and is unable to process it. He ultimately doesn't like himself. And so all of this stuff comes out. But this scene happens. I've just visited India uh, for the funeral of my father and had not a lovely interaction with my mother. And I come back and instead of sitting in the grief of my dad's loss, I take it out on the character played by Murray Bartlett, uh, Nick, Nick DeNoia. And that's kind of the story of Steve. He's this guy who can't like sit in himself and see what's inside of him. So he, he always directs it outwards. So to me, Steve, you know, after going through all the work of trying to figure out how he sounds and how he moves and how he sees the world, what's his morality system, what does he value, is he smart? How does he think of himself? How does he think of other people? How does he think of his body? All of that ultimately for me came down to an image. And for me, whenever I'm working on a character, it always comes down to, it has to come down to one image because I can't be on set trying to think of the 20 pages of things I've written over the last six months. And for me, the image of him was fire inside a block of ice. Um, and so if you look at him, you know, he's kind of a block of granite. He's very still, he's very stiff. He doesn't move very well. But I think that's because every molecule in his body is working to stop this fire inside his belly from coming out and taking over. And every now and then there's a fissure and you see like little glimpses of that fire. And that's what that scene is. You talked about when this part first came around right after Big Sick about what you wanted to do in your career. And you've done stand-up, you've been writing, you've been acting. So I'm wondering how your priorities have changed and how the upheaval in the business has either made your priorities change as well or opened up new opportunities to do the things that you want to do. It has certainly opened up new opportunities because there are so many streamers that you can have sort of an idiosyncratic show and it doesn't need to have like 15 million viewers to be successful. My priorities most specifically have changed, not because of the changes in the industry, but because of, honestly, it was during the pandemic, you know, staying inside for a year and a half with Emily. And I understand I'm very lucky to be, to not have to work during that. I didn't really do anything. I didn't, I wrote, you know, we, we wrote a bunch of things, but I didn't go on set and work because I, I didn't have to, I was very lucky. I realized I need to prioritize my personal life way more than I've been doing. Um, I had defined satisfaction only through work. I had defined myself only through work. And I realized in hanging out with Emily, you know, on our couch for a year and a half, I was like, oh, no, this is who I am. This is my life. This is the default. The other stuff is fun stuff I get to do. And I want to really, you know, and that stuff is tremendously important to me. I mean, I work really hard and I really pour myself into everything uh, I do, even when, uh, you know, and, and then a lot of times it doesn't come out great and that's its own heartbreak. 
So um, basically what I'm saying is it used to be as soon as a job was over, I was like, what's the next job? I need the next job. Now I'm much more uh, intentional about what I do and what I don't do. And um, I just, I just honestly prioritize my own happiness and satisfaction more than having, having a work, a work to go to. That doesn't fly in this town. You're going to have to change your priorities. Get it straight. I know. I know. It's tough. When the big sick came out theatrically, it grossed about $43 million domestically. That is as much as Spielberg's movie, The Fablemans, Todd Field's movie, Tar, and she said are going to make combined that there is no box office right now for any movie that doesn't start with Black Panther or Top Gun or Jurassic World. And I'm wondering when you think about, and we talked earlier about you're not going to the theater, what happens to the business and you as an actor when people aren't going to the movie theater anymore? Because that I think that's a bell that isn't going to be unrung. I think the pandemic just accelerated the collapse of movie theaters, but it's a huge part or was a huge part of your career and a big six theatrical success was really material. Yeah. And I want to say the reason we haven't been going to the theater is because I'm still a little bit scared of going to the theater, not because I'm not used to it. I still look forward to going, going back and feeling absolutely safe. You know, Emily says this, she's like, I think that year 2017 was the last year of indie movies that, performed well at the box office that weren't sort of genre movies, you know, horror, horror movies do do well. I mean, our movie made nine times what it cost, you know, that would be like a billion dollars for a, for a superhero movie. I think that was the last moment when movies like this did really well at the box office. I think that that market kind of went away. And now what we have is in the theaters, either we have these huge superhero movies, you know, um, or, or Top Gun or Jurassic Park, or you have very, very, very tiny movies that are sort of awards plays. What you don't have anymore, and Big Sick wasn't this, but the movie I missed most are sort of the mid-budget movies for grown-ups. You know, right. I think of movies like um, Broadcast News or Terms of Endearment. Those movies just... All Jim Brooks films, but yes. All Jim Brooks films, you know? Yeah. And those movies... Or like Working Girl, you yep. know. I mean, there no, are I know what you mean. I know what you mean. These fantastic movies that are kind of a grown-ups that had big movie stars in them. Those movies just don't get made because they either make them way cheaper for streaming, or or they make superhero movies. So I can't think of you know the Fablemans. I haven't gotten to see it. I'm sure that's wonderful, and that's probably in the budget range of the movies I'm yep. talking about. But that's Steven Spielberg. I don't think anybody else would be able to get that movie made at that at that price point. Well, and Steven Spielberg won't going forward. I mean, that's the sad truth that, you know, on top of West Side Story, this movie isn't doing well theatrically. So who knows what's going to happen ahead. Um, I love West Side Story as well. I, I thought I it was fantastic. The movies we love, I think, you know, Kiss of Death. Uh, the more we like them, the worse they're going to do. Um, well, that's the other That's the other tough thing, you know, and that's something that Emily and I have to think about when we're writing movies. So we have like sort of two movie scripts that we've written that are in that range. They're more expensive than the big sick, but they're not superhero movies. Will those get made? I don't know. We sold them to studios and we're in the process of figuring out if they're going to get made. But I think every sort of 
movie that doesn't do well in the theater hurts everybody. So Bros, you know, that movie yep. not doing well, really hurt us. I think Fableman's not doing well, really hurts us. I always look at the box office, you know, and I skip the first two or three because those are always going to be. And I want those movies to succeed, too. I love those movies. But it's the movies like numbers four through ten that I would love to see movies that are that are different in different genres doing well. And that's not what happens. And so now that affects the things we want to write that we can write. You know, we can, we have an idea. You could have an idea for a great sort of movie that would cost more than the big sick. That's kind of a movie for grownups. And there's kind of no point in writing it because it's just not going to get made. Kamel, it was great to see you next time, maybe in person. Give my best to Emily and uh, good luck with the rest of the series. Oh, thank you so much. That was comedian, writer, and actor Kamel Nanjiani. Welcome to Chippendales is on Hulu now. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. Sadly, sexual assaults in Hollywood continue to make news. First, we are still awaiting a verdict in the Harvey Weinstein trial in Los Angeles, where the former studio chief has been charged with forcible rape and sexual battery, among other charges. The jury has been deliberating since this past Friday. Weinstein could face a sentence of life in prison, depending on the verdict they come back with. But there are also developments involving two other show business figures owing to a new law in New York. And KPCC's arts and entertainment reporter, John Horn has more to share with you about that in this latest of our weekly discussions on show business news. Good morning, John. Good morning to you. What does this New York law allow? Well, the state recently passed a bill. It's called the Adult Survivors Act, and it briefly suspends the statute of limitations for sexual assault claims that can be brought in civil lawsuits. The Adult Survivors Act has a one-year window. It just opened in late November in which sexual assault survivors can file a civil lawsuit against their alleged abusers, their estates, and also businesses, organizations, or institutions that might have enabled or protected the person alleged to have committed the assaults. Has anyone taken advantage of this new law? Yes. Uh, outside of Hollywood, the journalist E. Jean Carroll sued Donald Trump, claiming he committed battery when he, quote, forcibly raped and groped her, unquote. And a woman sued billionaire investor Leon Black, saying she was raped at Jeffrey Epstein's home. Inside Hollywood, uh, this all happened on Monday, 38 women filed a joint lawsuit against filmmaker James Toback, claiming sexual misconduct. And those allegations mirror a report in the L.A. Times from about five years ago in which Many women described a very similar pattern of sexual assaults allegedly committed by Toback. Uh, His credits include a screenplay uh, credit on the film Bugsy. In the new lawsuit, the survivors say that Toback used, quote, fraud, coercion, force and intimidation into compromising situations where he falsely imprisoned, sexually abused, assaulted and or battered them, unquote. Toback has not commented on the new charges, but in the past has denied the allegations. And then the bigger story is on Monday, five women, including Cosby Show actors Lily Bernard and Eden Turrell, filed a lawsuit 
under the same New York bill against Bill Cosby and NBC, claiming they were sexually abused or assaulted by Cosby. And the woman said that Cosby either raped them or forced them into sexual acts. One allegation dates back to 1969. Others are from the late 80s and 1990. The suit also said that NBC and a Cosby show production company should have known that, quote, Cosby was sexually abusing, assaulting and or battering women including on their premises, but did nothing to stop it, unquote. NBC has declined to comment, and Cosby spokesman Andrew Wyatt called the lawsuit frivolous and said the five women were part of a, quote, parade of accusers who had come forward between 2014 and 2016. I should add, too, that Cosby was convicted in Pennsylvania four years ago on a criminal sex assault charge, but he was released last year after spending almost three years in prison when his conviction was overturned by the state Supreme Court on a double jeopardy charge. Going back to James Toback, has he ever faced any criminal charges? Not yet. And uh, Bill Cosby, as I just mentioned, did and was released. Uh, You know, there's a different issue in California for the statute of limitations. The New York Act is specifically about civil actions. If California passes some sort of uh, similar bill, it might open the window for civil actions in California. But the statute and, and in the case of Toback, it's it's worth noting that the LA Times reported on this story and then hundreds of other women came forward with similar stories. So the allegations against Toback likely won't lead to a criminal charge. But the New York state law, which was specifically designed as a workaround for this statute of limitations, you know, is valid. It's valid for a year. And we're only a, a week or so into it. So there could be other allegations against other people coming forward. Before you go, John, what do you think of the fact that it's taken so long for the Weinstein trial jury to come back with a verdict? I mean, I hope they're considering the evidence. I I watched the I I paid attention to what was, you know, the testimony and the defense. It looked pretty obvious to me, but you never know what a jury's going to say. I thought the evidence was overwhelming, but there've been other cases where the evidence has been overwhelming and the jury has come back with a not guilty verdict. So, We'll see soon. Well, Weinstein wouldn't be walking free anytime soon if he is acquitted because he's serving a 23-year sentence in New York for yes. a conviction there. Yes, and, and if he's convicted in Los Angeles, that sentence would most likely be added to that 23-year term. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.